Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Psalms of Ascent with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing Psalm 129. And like several of these episodes in this series, there is a chant of this psalm at the end of the episode. Do take a look at those links in the show notes. We have information down there about our Theopolis Fellows Program, which starts at the end of the month of July. We also have our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference on July 18th and 19th, as well as some regional courses on psalm singing and creation in the fall. All of those events and more information can be found in the show notes. We want to thank you all so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 129. This is a psalm of ascent, which would have been sung by the people as they walked toward Jerusalem to attend one of the triennial feasts. So as we read this, as I read it to you and you follow along, think in those terms. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. Flowers plowed upon my back, they lengthen their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut in two the cord of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. There are two sides to this psalm, as there are two stanzas. The first four verses a lamentation in the midst of suffering and a reminder that the Lord will deliver. And the second half, an imprecatory portion, section, a curse upon those who are guilty of oppressing God's people. You see, there are two things here. One is that we deserve anything that the Lord chooses to dish out to us because of our sin. And even if we don't understand directly why, it's for our good. And yet those who willfully sin against God by persecuting his people are guilty and God will destroy them. There's no contradiction there. Both things are necessary. Let's look at the psalm in somewhat more detail. We don't have a whole lot to say tonight. The lesson will be short. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Or we could say, much hostility have they shown toward me from my youth up. What is the youth of Israel? For the me here being Israel, when was their youth in which they were persecuted? No one knows. That's right, when they were in Egypt. All right. Now, that was a long time ago. Let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that this is written by David or Solomon. It comes from that time. A long time ago, and yet it says, let Israel now say, in the midst of the present distress, it is good to think back on what God has done for his people in earlier times of distress. Much hostility, much persecution have we endured from our youth up, but let Israel now in the present distress say, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The Lord afflicts his people, the Lord uses them to afflict his people, and yet they do not prevail against the people of God. And then we get the comparison or the analogy that's used throughout the psalm. Unlike some of the psalms we've looked at, in this psalm there is one analogy that's used throughout, and it's the analogy which is set up here in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. What two things are being compared in this psalm, in that phrase? The human body and 
a field. Man is made of dust, comes out of the ground, and so in the Bible there's frequently a comparison between culture and land for obvious reasons. We could say, even apart from the fact that the Bible draws attention to these things by saying that man comes out of the earth and thus culture comes out of the earth, we could also say that any given culture or society of people is located in a specific land or ground. And so there is an obvious comparison or analogy. Just as a plower plows a field, so in Egypt the people were subject to being whipped and stripes were put upon their back by the whip of their taskmasters. In Exodus 4, verse 14, it says, Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten, and so forth. And so, the experience of being beaten with rods or whips, such as would carve deep gashes in the flesh of a man as flowers plow upon the field, was characteristic of Israel in their youth when they were persecuted. The furrows were lengthened on their backs. But the Lord is righteous, in verse 4, and he has cut in half the cord, singular, of the wicked. This is the cord which connects the plow to the oxen. You have a yoke of oxen, and you have a strap which connects those oxen to the plow. We don't do this anymore in the year 1982. Most of us are not familiar with it, and yet that's what's being said here. Just as they are plowing on our back, the Lord cuts the cord, and no longer is this possible. The plow is rendered ineffective. The whip is taken away. The Lord is righteous, and he cut in two the cord of the wicked. Now, what's interesting here is as good Calvinists, I think that if we had written this psalm, we would say the Lord is sovereign. He has cut into the cord of the wicked. It's not so much a reflex in popular Calvinism as opposed to true Calvinism. It's not so much a reflex of God's righteousness as it is of his sovereignty. After all, we are all totally depraved, right? And so we deserve to have our backs plowed. And so it's God's electing grace and his sovereignty which results in his choosing Israel and rejecting Egypt. Is God's electing sovereign grace which causes him to cut the cord of the Egyptians and to save the Israelites. Now that's all very true, and yet that's not what the psalmist says. He says it's because the Lord is righteous. He had imputed righteousness to Israel, and then recognizing that Israel was beginning to respond to him and that they were acting as children, even as he had called them to be children, then he cuts the cord of the wicked. There's not zero relationship between our righteousness and how God treats us, in other words. Within the covenant, if we live a righteous life, God responds to that with rewards and blessings. If we live an unrighteous life, God responds to that with curses, underlying the very fact that it's possible for us to live a righteous life is our election in Christ's righteousness. But within the covenant, it's possible for us to live righteously or sinfully. And there are blessings for righteousness, such as getting to go to the ice cream palace if you memorize the Ten Commandments. And then there are curses, such as not getting to go to the ice cream palace if you just didn't get those commandments memorized. There are blessings and curses, and that's the way God deals with us. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, we don't need to go over this. And here it is again. 
Those who were righteous, the Lord righteously vindicated them, and he cut into the cords of the wicked. Behind that we know is the electing grace of God. And yet, the thing to learn is that persevering in righteousness, even in tribulation, eventually brings vindication. Maybe there's a shorter way to say that. If we persevere in righteousness, if we continue to live right, even when we're suffering and persecuted, God eventually will vindicate us. God eventually will see it and act on our behalf. It may take a while, but the time will come. Now we come to an imprecation. Here again, this is sometimes hard for people to do. We tend to become so affected with the sense of our own sinfulness, it's hard for us to call down curses against the enemies of God. And yet, the Bible tells us that it's very easy to discern who are God's friends and who are God's enemies. I'm afraid this point is obscured in some branches of Christendom, but it's not in the Bible. There is a lot of literature about hypocrisy, which says that even if a man loves Jesus, and even if a man obeys the law, and even if he prays, and even if he goes to church, and even if he lives a perfectly good moral life, he still might be a hypocrite. And eventually you come to this mystical position that there's nothing you can do or think or say ever to convince yourself that you're not really a hypocrite. And you may think that you're a Christian and wake up one day and find that you're a hypocrite. You know, the Bible never talks that way. In the Bible, hypocrisy is very, very obvious. Have you ever thought about that? The Pharisees were hypocrites. And what were they characterized as? Flagrant adultery. Flagrant abuses of the law. Flagrantly crushing widows being in league with the Roman power in such a way as to engage in oppressive taxation. One could go down the list, but you never see Jesus accusing the Pharisees of hypocrites on the basis of the fact that they really were trying hard, but weren't making it. No, when Jesus characterizes them as hypocrites, it's for very obvious, visible things. A hypocrite in the Bible is not hard to discern. You can tell who the hypocrites are. They're pretty obvious. Now, that should encourage us. Of course it's possible for a person to be in the church and to be fooling everybody. But really we don't fool ourselves, I guess is the point. And just as it's not terribly difficult to tell who the Christians are, so is it not terribly difficult to tell who the enemies of God are. And that's the important point. We think, well, should we pray an imprecatory prayer against the humanists? Do we really know that they're enemies of God? Maybe they're going to convert. Maybe God intends to elect them, or maybe they're elect and God intends to regenerate some of them. Maybe we shouldn't name names like, say, Madeline Murray O'Hare, to take a scandalous example, or Adolf Hitler. Maybe we shouldn't name names in our prayers and ask God to curse and destroy these people because they might be elect, and so we'd be praying wrong. But that's not the way we pray. Election is God's business. Our business is the covenant, right? Secret things belong to him. The revealed things belong to us. There's no question. It's very easy to see which side of the fence Madeline Murray O'Hare falls on. It's not hard. The true church is not hard to discern, as the Belgian Confession says. And the enemies of the true church are not hard to discern. We know who's baptized and who isn't. We know who lives right and who doesn't. We know who say they love Christ. We know who say they hate him. And we can pray that God would destroy these people. How he chooses to destroy them is his business. There are two ways to destroy a person. One is to kill them and wipe them off the earth. The other is to kill him and raise him from the dead and convert him. Either way, the old man has to die, right? So whether God kills him, destroys them by converting him and granting him resurrection, 
or whether he destroys them by sending them into hell and like a fire is his affair. Our affair is to pray that they be destroyed because they have to be destroyed. If we hate sin in ourselves, we also have to hate sin out there. And that is the basis for imprecatory prayers. That's the basis for saying that you hope they'll dry up like a snail on a hot sidewalk, as the psalmist says elsewhere. And all those other things that are used in the imprecatory psalms. Here is some imprecatory psalm here. By the way, if you read the Psalter, you'll find that the majority of the psalms have imprecatory elements. We know that there are three or four imprecatory psalms that are imprecatory from start to finish. Imprecatory means a cursing psalm, a psalm which calls down a curse. But more than half the psalms have sections which are curses. Here's one. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. That's clear enough. May they be embarrassed. What does that mean practically in terms of the Bible? Who were the first people who were ever ashamed in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Why were they ashamed? Because they were naked. Their nakedness was exposed. And in the book of Ezekiel, we find that shame is again spoken of that way. The exposure of a person to public ridicule. All of his pretenses, all of his artificial hypocrisy in life is stripped away. And no one covers it up socially by pretending that it's okay. No, everybody turns and spits. That's what it means to be put to shame to be exposed. It's very embarrassing to have built up an image in a community of people so that everybody thinks that you're an okay guy or everybody thinks that you're a pretty good person and have all that ripped away. It's very embarrassing. And here they will be put to shame. All of their power will be shown as a sham and they'll be turned backward. And then the analogy that we started in the first half of the psalm is continued here the analogy of the comparison of a human body or a human culture to a field. Let them be like grass upon the housetop, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, that is, upon the grass. We bless you, the grass, the wheat, in the name of the Lord. Several things are said here. It's an elaborate imprecation. We have to remember, in case any of you don't know, that the houses in that culture were flat. They didn't have to worry about snow. When I moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, not Mississippi or Texas, I was surprised to see how sharply pointed the roofs are. But then if you have two feet of snow, you need a sharply pointed roof so that the weight is distributed and the snow tends to slide off. You don't need that in hot climates, and so you build flat roofs. And in the summertime, to get the cool breeze, you go up on the roof to cool off, or like Bathsheba, to take a bath. There are dangers in flat roofs, too. But one of the things that happens is, if the buildings are made out of certain kinds of material, you get a certain amount of dirt or less on top of the roof, and you get seeds which wind up up there, and you get a little bit of grass. But there's no depth of soil, obviously, on a roof, unless you have a garden up there. And so, as soon as the grass springs up, it withers away. Now, these people are said to be like grass upon the housetops. Their culture only flourishes for a brief moment. And the comparison now, remember, is to the Christian culture, which is like a field, which has been plowed very deep. And the plowing seems to be important to the productivity of the crop. We'll get to that at the end of the psalm. And yet, the wheat field grows for months and months and yields a big harvest. But what grows on the top of the house 
doesn't yield much of anything. Now, how about the fact that it's on a housetop? That's significant, too, because the Bible uses physical height as an analogy to spiritual pride. Remember that Satan said, I will exalt myself, I will put my throne up high on the high mountains, whereas only God should be on the high mountain. And so the use of the comparison to the housetop also points to these people who thought that they were loftier than the lowly field. They set their culture on high, and yet it only flourished for a brief moment. They set themselves higher than the field. The grass withers before it's even grown up, unlike the field, which in spite of all the plowing, the plowing only makes the wheat grow better. In the field, the grass will grow until it produces grain. So the first characteristic of the wicked is that they wither away. Their culture is ephemeral. It lasts only for the moment. Then a second characteristic is that the culture is fruitless. The reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his bosom. The reaper would go through the field cutting and filling his hand. The binder would bind these sheaves together against himself. He'd grab them and then bind them in. So it's a matter of binding into the bosom. That's the action of the binder of sheaves. Now this is all done by big expensive equipment that's air-conditioned on the inside and costs a fortune. But back then, it was done by people directly. So the second characteristic of the unrighteous culture and of the unrighteous people is that they are fruitless. Their culture doesn't grow to the point of issuing in anything of value. Now that's not true of the wheat field of the Christians. We know that in the great harvest day the angels come and they gather in the wheat and God is very pleased. And we find that throughout the Old Testament, that at the Passover, a sheaf was waved, and at Pentecost, the grain which has been harvested is baked into loaves, and they are waved before God. And at the end of history, all of God's harvest is given over to him. And so the field will produce a crop which is pleasing to God. And then the final characteristic of the unrighteous culture, the grass upon the housetops, is that no one wishes the blessing of the Lord upon them, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is a ritual or liturgy in the midst of life. We saw it, that is, those of you that were here then, since it was a while back, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. We have this formula in our worship service, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. You're supposed to look at the officiant when you say that because he says that to you and you say that to him. And with your spirit is a benison or a well-wishing, a blessing that you wish upon the officiant during the liturgy. But now no one wishes a blessing upon these people. Those who pass by do not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. No, in fact... They curse them. The cursing of the Lord is upon you, and we curse you in the name of the Lord. That's the whole point of all of this. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. As we meditate upon this, then it begins to come through from the psalm that there may even be some connection between the fact that our backs are plowed when we're young, and then later on there is the yielding of the harvest. And in fact, the Bible says in a number of places, this kind of thing. One that we're familiar with is that it's good for a man to bear his burdens in his youth. And then the other one, which is more clear, is in Hebrews 12, verse 11, 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, and yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It yields fruit. The same analogy is used there of a harvest, and the same condition is set out, that certain amount of chastisement and discipline from the Lord is part of the mix which goes into the production of righteous character. And so at the end of the psalm, those who are walking to Jerusalem, walking to heaven, are able to say that even the early persecution of the youthful period and these later persecutions which have come in from time to time, those are all blessings from the Lord as well because they enable us to be a wheat field and not a housetop. They enable us to produce fruit which is pleasing to God, the primary fruit that's pleasing to Him being our very selves. And they enable us not to be among those who wither away. Let's read the psalm and collect our thoughts about it. As we walk to Jerusalem, we sing, and this is likely a Passover, you see, because it talks about the deliverance from Egypt. The singing of this psalm would have been most appropriate as they came toward Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread at Passover. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now at the present time say, Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, and yet they did not prevail against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows, but the Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the plow of the wicked. May all of those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which first of all withers before it grows up, and second of all, which the reaper does not fill his hand with, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. And third of all, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The implication being that upon the wheat field, people do say this blessing. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. On my back the plowers plowed, they lengthened their furrows. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. May all be put to shame and turned back who hate Zion. May they be like grass on housetops, which before it grows withers, which does not fill his palm the reaper nor his arms the sheaf-binder. And may those who pass by not say, The blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be age after age. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.